Mark 11, beginning in verse 1, says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing? Loosing the colt. And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to be receptive to hear your voice speaking to us through what you have spoken by your spirit in the word of God. So bless your word as we study it this morning now and speak to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in the early to mid-80s, I believe it was, there was a show of military vets, which was called the A-Team. And you may remember if you watched any episodes of the A-Team, there was a leader amongst them, his name was Hannibal, and he had a very famous line that he would always say typically in the episodes. You may remember it, he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. That was sort of his famous line. He would say it oftentimes towards the end of the episode. He would say, I love it when a plan comes together. The idea is I love when a plan that was already designed begins to take shape and it starts to work itself out in the way that it does. Well, look, when something is the plan of God, it always comes together in God's timing and in God's way. And our Lord just has a marvelous way to bring about his plans quite incredibly. And today's passage, as we're looking at together, is an example of the plan of the Lord unfolding. This is the Lord's plan unfolding. Now question, what does it look like when the plan of the Lord is unfolding in a particular situation? Well, there will be some characterizing marks, not all, but some of them I believe we see in this passage that we can glean some lessons from, from this historical event that's being described here in Mark's gospel, which clearly was the plan of the Lord unfolding. And today, when the plan of the Lord is unfolding, we'll find similar characterizing marks as well. The triumphal entry of Jesus, as we often refer to it, is one of the few events that ends up being recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. Uh, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it refers to the events that transpired, as I said, one week prior to that blessed Sunday that we will celebrate next week, the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection after having been put to death 
in crucifixion. Often, as I said, we refer to it as Palm Sunday this day because of the leafy branches. The other accounts say actually palm branches that were used in these events of Jesus processing into Jerusalem. Others refer to it. Your Bible may have a little header at the top of the passage as the triumphant entry of Jesus. And in some ways, I think that's fitting because one thing is true is Jesus was making an entry into Jerusalem this week and the events that would unfold during this week indeed brought about one of the greatest triumphs in human history that any person has ever accomplished where the son of God and the son of man, Jesus Christ would die for our sins upon the cross where he would raise from the dead, defeating the power of death and provide a way of salvation. Now in this very event that we're looking at here, a week before the, 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 the suffering and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're a note taker, you may want to jot down the plan of the Lord was unfolding in a specific way. And you may want to jot into your notes or in your Bible, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, because in Zechariah chapter nine, 500 years prior to this actual historical event happening, there was a prophecy that was made that specifically predicted something regarding these very events, a way in which the Savior or Messiah would come in such a way that he would present himself in an extremely evident way so that people could identify it was the Savior, it was the Messiah to validate his credibility as the one whom God sent to us. Let me read it to you. Zechariah 9, 9 says this. Listen to it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, with that predictive prophecy in mind, we see our Lord here, as we just read, unfolding his plan in a very specific and purposeful way as was written in the word of God and predicted of him, presenting himself openly, directly according to what the word of God said he would do 500 years prior to this time. It tells us there in verse one, as we read it, that Jesus and his disciples, it says verse one, were drawing near to Jerusalem. Now, the reason they're drawing near to Jerusalem is together with other pilgrim feasts to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Uh, this is what they're heading into Jerusalem for, to commemorate God's deliverance of his people through the sacrificing of lambs. It reflected how the blood represented the way whereby in the days of Israel, the wrath of God passed over his people, sparing them from judgment, bringing deliverance from slavery. And this very Passover feast would be the most special one of ever because Jesus himself would become the very fulfillment of this Passover feast as the sacrificial lamb foreshadowed symbolically. In Jerusalem, Jesus would offer himself this week as the final Passover lamb, as the ultimate Passover lamb that through his blood, they would be spared the eternal judgment of God and receive forgiveness of sins and that they would be delivered from the slavery of sin, delivered from the slavery of death, and the slavery of fear, and the slavery of Satan. John called Jesus on one occasion the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
We've seen in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there it literally says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So as everyone else is heading to Jerusalem this week, thinking they're going to celebrate the Passover feast, and that's their plan. Jesus has a completely different plan. And we're going to see his plan was way better than their plan. His plan was to actually provide salvation once for all in the giving himself as the Lamb of God. And it tells us there in verse 1 that as they drew near Jerusalem, it says, verse 1, they came then to Bethpage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is a hill area across a valley directly to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And these two locations, Bethany and Bethpage, are kind of like suburb areas right outside the city, like the suburbs outside the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us that when they now get there, look what it says, that Jesus, verse one going on, sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, questioning, why are you doing this? Just tell them the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So Jesus now starts to put his plan into action. He has a plan in his heart. He knows exactly what it is, but now he starts to put the plan into action. And notice what he does. He gives instructions to follow, which require what? Faith, walking out steps of faith, and obedience in direct relation to his direction. Jesus being lured over all, knowing all about everything and everyone, controlling and coordinating all events on earth, he tells his disciples where to go. He says, go into the village opposite you. That's where I want you to go. And then he tells them when they get there, what to expect. He says, when you walk in, you're gonna clearly see right away a colt tied up as soon as you enter in to the city. And then he tells them what to do. I want you to walk over, start untying it. And he tells them what to expect. He says, look, you may get challenged or questioned by the owners. Why are you taking our colt? What are you doing? He tells them exactly what to say, how to handle the situation. And he even assures them that despite these events, that things were gonna work out okay and they didn't have to be concerned about what looked almost like a risky maneuver. He says, look, I assure you, as my plan's unfolding and my power's directing things, everything's going to work out fine in the end. Now, imagine hearing that instruction, really, and trying to process that logically yourself if you were these two disciples given this direction from the Lord. That does not sound very practical, nor does it sound very responsible, does it? Quite honestly, if you consider it, it doesn't even seem very realistic. And even it sounds a little bit risky, what he's just asked them to do. To me, the best way I could illustrate that is imagine this morning if Jesus were to say to you, look, I want you to go up the road here to the Honda dealership. And I want you to go on to the lot. And when you go on to the lot, there's going to be a specific vehicle. And he identifies which one that's going to be there. And I want you to then go into the sales office look up by the code, the keys for that vehicle, walk back out into the dealership, ignore all seven salesmen who've already bothered you so far asking what you're doing, walk right up to that vehicle, stick the keys in it, turn the ignition on and begin to pull out in reverse. And if they say to you, whoa, 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 what are you doing, man? What are you doing? What are you doing taking that vehicle? Say to them, um, the Lord needs it. 
And that they'll say, oh, okay, well, if the Lord needs it, no problem. Take off and drive away. I mean, imagine being able to truly do that, and that's somehow working out. That would be something that would really challenge our logical reasoning. But quite honestly, that's kind of what he's telling them to do here. To go into this village, they're going to see this animal, to go up, to untie it. It would be a total step of faith in order to obey what the Lord was asking them, what the Lord would be asking us if he was asking us to do that. Yet he's the Lord, and he has a plan, and he has reasons for his plan. And when he asks us to do things for him to fulfill some purpose, we have to then decide, are we going to take the step of faith because this is his plan or are we not? Are we going to take actions of obedience and obey his will and what he wants done? And even think about it, not only that, even the way we go about it, because I'm sure the disciples could have come up with a couple other ideas that would have been an easier way to get a donkey. I mean, they could have come up with other ways to try and, well, maybe if we just alter the approach, try it a little different way. His idea seems a little risky. Maybe we'll do it a less risky way. I'm sure the disciples could have rationalized all types of other things, but the plan of the Lord unfolding always involves him giving to us many times steps of faith. It requires us to take steps of faith. It requires us to put obedient action forth as he desires us to do something that aligns with his purposes and walking by faith if you haven't noticed yet it doesn't always align with our logical reasoning a lot of times walking by faith will challenge what's practical it will contradict logical reasoning it requires trust in jesus authority over all circumstances notice also as well in our verses here it says that jesus at the end of verse one sent out two of them on this assignment. I draw your attention to that because as the plan of the Lord is unfolding, oftentimes the way of the Lord is typically for us to do things in partnership when we do things the Lord is directing for us. You see, this is a common pattern in the scripture that Jesus would direct people to go forth and do things with a partner. And many a times we see our Lord working in this way that when we take ventures of faith or serve together and do things, a lot of times it is a part of the Lord's plan that we do it not independently, but in cooperation with a partner or partners. The Bible says two are better than one for they have a good return for their work. Think of the benefits of two people or more than two people doing something. You have the benefit of accountability. That's a great benefit of not serving the Lord alone. You can keep each other accountable in ways. You can stay on track with mission. Keep doing it by faith. If someone else is, is maybe you know, deviating and they're trying to come up with another way, sometimes the young person can say, look, we need to trust the Lord here. We need to keep doing this in faith. Or somebody kind of takes the mission off track a little bit. Wait a minute, that's, I think this was what we're supposed to do. And these are the benefits of partnership, providing support. People can do different tasks like we talked about last week, the different parts of the body. So when often we're experiencing the plan of the Lord unfolding, a lot of times he incorporates us doing it in partnership together with someone else in some way. I also can't help but to love the answer that Jesus tells them to give when they're questioned by the owners of the donkey. When they say to him, hey, what are you doing? Why are you taking our donkey to just say the Lord has need of it? In other words, what you have that belongs to you the Lord wants to use that for accomplishing his purposes. 
And this is the idea of this here, asking to use something that is theirs to fulfill the work of the Lord. The idea is the Lord would like to use what belongs to you. Will you allow him to use it? See, Jesus knew that people tend to, do we not, keep a tight grip on things that are our possessions, our stuff, whatever it may be. Again, especially when something's more valuable to you, it's more important to you. People want to preserve that, and we're not easily prone usually to letting someone else use something that's ours, especially if it's something that's ours that's important or valuable, right? And we justify it in many ways. Well, that wouldn't be good stewardship. I need to make sure it gets taken care of. But a lot of times it really boils down to human selfishness more than anything else. But look, the question becomes this. What if the Lord wants to borrow and use something that's yours? What if it's actually the Lord who has need of it? What if the Lord says, I know that belongs to you, but I need to use that or I would like to use that? Will you let me use that? Will you let me utilize what belongs to you for my purposes? Because there are times when the Lord's plan is unfolding, like we see this example here, where he wants to include us in his purposes. He wants to allow us to be involved in his work. And he may identify something that belongs to you that would work really great for something that he wants to do. And we find that tension going on, the prompting from heaven, or maybe it's a direct request that's made of us identifying something that you have that the Lord's plan would need to be able to accomplish something that he wants to do. And you kind of sense that prompting. The Lord has need of this. Will you let him use it? The Lord would like to use that. Will you allow him to use it? Is it possible? Maybe, I don't know. The Lord needs to use something that you have to accomplish something that he wants to get done. Let's be honest. He's God. He could create 50 donkeys. He didn't really need technically the donkey. The idea there is the Lord wanted to include them and he was giving them an opportunity to imagine afterwards those disciples, that donkey owner, to find out, oh my goodness, the Lord said he wanted to use something. He needed something I had. I offered it to him. Look what he did with it and the eternal purposes that were accomplished. And again, it's a privilege ultimately to let the Lord use something that he says he needs that may belong to us. And sometimes that's part of his plan at work in our lives. Look, verse four goes on to tell us that after Jesus gives the instruction, look, they take the steps. It says they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, as was expected, what are you doing loosing the colt? Now the pressure's cranking up. And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. That's always a really good thing to do, by the way. Spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. So what did they do? Verse six, they let them go. So despite logical wrestling, I'm sure they walked forward in faith. They trusted what Jesus spoke to them. They did what Jesus asked of them, believing he had a plan that he would work on their behalf. And what was their part? Really, it was kind of, the first word, go, right? It was take the first step. Take the first step. Get going in that direction. Commit to it. Take the step and then keep going forward. And their faith translated, you see in these verses here, into obedient actions. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants our faith to translate into obedient actions. Now, 
since there were two of them, I can't help but to try and envision, as I said earlier, them trying to walk out the process. This I would have loved to have seen as an episode. As they leave, as they're walking over to the village, and they're talking among themselves, and they're saying, you, you, you really think there's going to be a donkey when we get there? And, and, and I can hear them just you know, kind of dialoguing about this, and then they show up. Oh, my goodness, there's a donkey. Do, do you think, I don't know, go untie it, dude. And, and the one goes over, and he starts untying the donkey, and the owner comes out. And this had to be the main pressure point where the owner comes out and says, hey, what are you doing taking my donkey? And I imagine the two of them looked at each other, kind of like, um, the Lord has need of it? Okay. And, and I imagine this reality, but again, what are they doing? They're going through the steps of the crisis of faith that often we go through where our rational mind is making us struggle with maybe what the Lord is telling us to do. I think people do this in salvation, right? They hear the gospel. It's so overly simple that you can't work your way into heaven. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have to receive him as your savior like a little child. You have to humble yourself. And, and some people, are you kidding me? I went to CCD. I did all the classes. I did this. I did that. I wrote all these checks. And you're telling me? That these people who did none of that stuff, they're just believing and asking Jesus to save them and their sins are forgiven and they're going to heaven now. And though I did all that stuff, that's not good enough and I'm not getting into heaven. And again, what's going on? That crisis of our logic and faith and that wrestling. And again, but it's only as we take the steps of faith that we actually experience what the Lord is doing. As they took steps of faith and obedience, they saw the power of the Lord begin to work on their behalf. They saw the plan of the Lord begin to unfold because when the plan of the Lord unfolds, our part is always to exercise faith, to, to take practical steps of obedience. And when we do that, when the plan of the Lord is unfolding, his power then begins to start to work. It's when we begin to exercise faith his power and plan begins to unfold. He starts putting things together circumstantially, just like he did here. He starts to work on our behalf, moving in hearts as needed, maybe overcoming challenges, us, giving us favor where it's needed, preserving us if we're doing something that seems a little bit risky, right? I mean, they were doing something that seemed a little bit risky. I mean, what if this guy comes out and beats us with a shovel? I mean, that's a little bit risky. You just want us to take his donkey, and when he asks, tell him the Lord needs it, and he's not going to be an angry farmer and beat us over the head. I mean, a donkey was a valuable tool. It was a valuable instrument. But he protected them as they did what was obedient. And the reason this whole thing worked out, listen, is not because, some commentators try and say, because, well, Jesus went ahead of them, and the day before he prearranged with Farmer Joe, look, we're going to come. I'm only going to borrow your donkey for a few hours. And look, I'll actually, here's a few you know, coins or whatever. And they kind of try and practically reason out. No, the reason why it worked out is because Jesus knows everything. He's God. And when his power and plan is at work, he can do anything he wants to do. He can move on hearts and make things work out. And he controls everything by his authority. Again, this is a prophetic experience unfolding verse 7 tells us that when they then brought the colt to jesus they then threw their clothes on it and he sat on it so even as the prophecy prescribed jesus is now fulfilling it perfectly 
And again, notice it tells us, like Zechariah 9 said, that it was a colt or a young donkey. And it says coming on that colt, he now sits on it and starts to ride, we're going to see, into the city. Now, coming on a colt was a way that a king would oftentimes enter into a city. The reason is because a donkey, which a colt is, a young donkey, a donkey is a very sure-footed animal that could carry heavy burdens or be under a heavy load, and they had very stable footing so they wouldn't be prone to stumbling. And it would be really bad if your king was coming into the city and the animal stumbled and the king looked like he wasn't in control. So this was a very common way. You see it in the Old Testament. Jehu and others would come in on a donkey, as well as the fact that a lot of times, rather than a majestic war horse, they would come in on a donkey because a donkey was a symbol of peace in the minds of the people. So as the king came in on a donkey, it was symbolic of the king saying, I am offering you terms of peace. I am coming offering peace to you as a people. What does the Bible say of Jesus? That he's the prince of peace. And when Jesus came in his first coming, he came as a humble servant offering us what? Peace with God. Through what he accomplished in his suffering, death, and resurrection, we become servants of the kingdom of God and experience the gracious rule of our Lord over our hearts in such a way whereby we can enjoy the peace of God within us because Jesus came this way in his first coming. Notice as well, it says that as he came, it says they put the clothing on the animal for a saddle. And then verse seven also says, and then Jesus sat on it. Now, don't overlook that. That's an indication the animal fully cooperated and let the Lord do this without resisting him when he mounted the animal. Do you remember what we read back in verse two? Look at it. It says, bring that colt on which no one has sat. The idea is this is a young, unbroken animal. Typically, they would be prone the first time somebody sat on them to do what? Buck, resist not just cooperate and be submissive, their natural tendency would be to buck and resist. However, when the Lord sat on this creature, it sensed its creator and it completely cooperated. His authority caused it to completely submit. Look, Jesus' authority is able to overrule, listen, any natural barriers that may come up that would hold back his plan from unfolding. And this is a beautiful picture of that. There was a natural barrier that would have hindered the process, but Jesus' authority dealt with the natural barrier. And he is more than able to do that when his plan is at work. Verse 8 then tells us that many began to spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down leafy branches. The other accounts tell us palm branches specifically from the trees. And they spread them on the road. So as was symbolic when kings entered cities, the people start to act accordingly here. It tells us they start to take their clothing as well as leafy palm branches, and they begin to lay them on the road as a pathway under the Lord as he's riding into the city at this point. Now, that symbolically indicated an act of submission to a leader's authority. As they put their clothes in these palm branches under Jesus's feet as he rode in, the desire is, the indication there is we desire you to rule over us. We want to be under your leadership and authority. We, we embrace that. And so this is what the people are doing here. And when the plan of the Lord is unfolding as well, another characteristic that often will be tied to that is we will see people 
beginning to submit to and respond to the lordship of Jesus over their lives. That when the Lord's plan is unfolding, people begin yielding to the Lord. People begin submitting to the rulership of Jesus, letting him have control over their life. When the Lord's at work, he will orchestrate in things people's hearts where they begin to want to let Jesus direct their lives in ways prior to that time period in their life. Verse 9 then tells us as well, as he's now riding in, look what begins to happen. Those who went before, those who followed after, they began to cry out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is a very interesting event because this is now the first time the very first time in accordance with his plan and his timing that Jesus is openly allowing people to recognize him as the Messiah. Remember all the other times of this? They would they begin to say, say, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. But now it's his plan. Now it's his timing. And now he is openly allowing himself to be recognized as Messiah King. And as the king is making his possession into the capital city of the Jewish people, it tells us they're kind of bookending him. There are people in front of him, there are people in back of him, and they're expressing loud worship towards him, crying out their desires. And they're using here in verse 9 and 10 with their words, one of the traditional processional psalms that the people would use to sing and speak out loud as they were making their way to Jerusalem for the feast celebrations. It comes from Psalm 118. They're crying out phrases here from Psalm 118, which also spoke prophetically of the Messiah. And so here we find them using these terms as the Jews awaiting a king to bring them deliverance are now beginning to shout these things. Well, let's see what they're actually shouting in worshipful enthusiasm. The first thing they say, verse 9, is Hosanna. Right? We just sang that song. Tommy had us sing that song this morning very fittingly. Hosanna, which basically means save now or save now we pray. So when you sing Hosanna, that's what you're saying. Save now, save Lord, save now we pray. They then said, blessed is he who comes, notice in the name of the Lord. And that's the covenant name of God, Jehovah God, indicating Jesus was the blessed one who came representing Jehovah God. And that's very fitting as well, because the name Jesus literally means Jehovah is salvation. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do, to bring salvation, not deliverance from the Roman government's oppression to make society better. But he came instead the first time to bring the greatest need of deliverance, which was to be saved from the condition of their souls, not the condition of their society that they didn't like very much, but to deal with the condition of their soul to free them from the controlling oppression of sin ruling over them, to liberate them from that which was holding them back spiritually. Jesus came the first time, the Bible says, to save his people from their sins. We're told as well here that they were crying out, blessed is he, it says, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. The idea is the kingdom of our father David is the eternal kingdom that our father David would bring unto us. And what they're here thinking about is how God predicted that the Messiah would come through the family line, remember, of King David. 
Second Samuel chapter seven tells us that God spoke saying, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, saying this to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So again, as they're proclaiming this, that's exactly who Jesus was, a blood descendant of King David, further validating exactly who he was and his credibility. And then they said as well, verse 10, the kingdom comes in the name of the Lord. And notice the changes there. The first time Lord's used this capital L-O-R-D for the covenant name of God. Here it's the capital L, small O-R-D, because the Greek word there is kurios, which is a term that speaks of rulership. And the idea here of what they're saying is that this king is going to be the ruler over all. And that's exactly what Jesus was. It's what he's been exhibiting in this very passage, that he was the one who was ruler over all, but humbly came as man so that he could be son of God in power and son of man in humility to be the perfect mediator to bring forth salvation for mankind. That's how God brought it. First Timothy chapter two says it this way. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior. Listen, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Hear that verse again. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Man, I want to pray things that are in accordance with God's will. Well, the Bible says it's God's desire that people get saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So if you pray for people to get saved, you are praying something in accordance with the will of God. That's a very strong basis for praying. God, you said that's your desire. So I'm asking this because you desire to do it. Not praying a prayer and wondering, I wonder if this lines up with God's desire. If you pray for people to get saved, that's God's desire. And the Bible says he desires all to be saved. And then says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So again, one God, one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Not any other person or any other religious figure. No saint, no one God, one mediator, one mediator to come between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the one who was son of God and son of man. That is the way to God only through the person of Jesus. No priest, no person, the person, the man of Jesus Christ, who was the savior. And look at the last statement they proclaimed there in verse 10. Again, they say again, Hosanna in the highest. Now, the idea there, Hosanna in the highest, is from the highest place. That is from heaven. In other words, you're saying, save now from heaven. Save now from the highest place. Save from heaven. And again, because of who Jesus was when he came and how he lived the sinless life and he sacrificially died in a substitutional way, being punished for our sins upon the cross this Friday ahead of these events and then rose back to life the third day, on Resurrection Sunday, and ascended back into heaven. Now Jesus is alive, victorious. The work is finished, and he can save from the highest place. He can save any soul. That's why it's good to pray for that. Hebrews 7.25 says he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now notice as you look at the scene in verse 9 and 10 here, 
as the plan of the Lord is unfolding, what does it result in? People's focus being turned to the Lord. It's resulting in people passionately worshiping the Lord. When the Lord's plan is unfolding, it's resulting in people longing for the salvation of the Lord. When the Lord's plan's unfolding, those should be things that we begin to see. What a beautiful scene. Now, here's the sad part. One week later, this very same crowd who are shouting these things, when Jesus did not fulfill their plan, their expectation, which was that he would be a political ruler, that he would fix society's problems temporally, that he would come as a political king to fix society, they would then turn and shout what? Crucify him. Crucify him and treat him horribly. Look, we should always remember that his plan is much, much better than our plan. Aren't you glad he carried out his plan and that he fulfilled his plan and not the people's plan? The plan of the Lord is so much more valuable than any plan that we have. Now, Luke's account of these same events adds some really unique details. So turn with me just quickly before we conclude to Luke 19, a little ways to the right. Luke's account of this adds a few extra details, which are very insightful to look at. Luke 19, it tells us in verse 39, the response to them crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke 19, verse 39 It tells us this, that some of the Pharisees, that is the religious leaders, called out to Jesus from the crowd as they're worshiping, saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop saying that. Notice when the plan of the Lord is unfolding, there will often be fleshly resistance. These religious leaders were not in right relationship with God or the Lord Jesus Christ and they did not want Jesus to be honored. So what are they doing? They're trying to stop people from worshiping the Lord. That's insightful. Don't let them worship. Cut that out. You can go to Walmart, but don't you dare worship. Well, that's interesting. Nothing new under the sun when the spirit of the devil is operating behind the scenes and just subtle and again trying to resist the plan of the lord trying to stop people from worshiping the lord they wanted to control people they didn't want people to follow the lord so they say stop your disciples make them stop doing that well look i love what what the answer comes back look what jesus says verse 40 he said to them i tell you that if these should keep silent that is if they stop worshiping me the very stones will immediately cry out I love Jesus's response here. How awesome was that? If they would have stopped praising Jesus, Jesus would have still did whatever it took to bring to pass what should rightfully happen, which is that he should be worshiped. When the Lord's plan is unfolding, folks, no human force can stop the work of the Lord. It's not going to happen. Quite honestly, how awesome would it have been if they actually would have went silent? Wouldn't that have been a great scene in the Bible? If they would have went silent and the stones would have erupted in praise and it would have happened because the creator would have made it happen. That would have been the first rock concert, right? That would have been awesome. Been saving that the whole Bible study. 
That's why I don't do humor. Look, what a humbling reminder that nothing honestly can resist the plan of the Lord. The Lord's plan is going to unfold whether people participate or people don't participate. Whether people try and resist the Lord and what he wants to do or not, people can, can do anything. But look, even if people are hard as rocks, Jesus can make them cooperate because Jesus has ultimate authority. Verse 41 tells us, as they drew near, he then saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Notice the unusual unexpected event begins to transpire at the end where Jesus responds, what now? Much differently than everybody else. What's everybody else doing? Enthusiasm, celebrating, they're excited and, and, and they're enthusiastic, crying out. But it tells us that as Jesus surveys the city and he knows the hearts and the minds of all people, it tells us that he, understanding their condition, begins to weep now. He begins to convulsively weep. And as they look over at the Lord, everyone's celebrating. And he's convulsively starting to weep now as he enters into the city of Jerusalem because he realizes, sadly, the majority of the people in that crowd were missing the whole point of his plan that day. Again, what did they want? They wanted a ruler that would be a strong political military leader. Give us this person on our political throne because he will fix our society. And Jesus is so grieved in his heart as he sees that going on because he realizes, look, the deepest need is not better circumstances in your society. The deepest need is the spiritual help of your inward life. That is the deepest need inside of every person. And Jesus came this time to be a humble, suffering servant, to dethrone not a political power or political party. He came to deliver people from the power of sin, to dethrone sin and hell from controlling people. And this is why he's so heartbroken, because they're completely missing, really, what the Lord is trying to do foremost, which is just to reach people's souls to help people inwardly, to get people prepared for eternity. And that's why Jesus says here as he's crying, if you had known even this day the things that would make for your peace, inward peace. But he says, now you're missing it. It's hidden from your eyes. And because you're missing it, you're going to bring greater judgment upon yourself, as was the case. You know, oftentimes, one of the greatest errors of human beings is we have much too of a worldly view of things. And because we have such a worldly view, we think everything's about the now, the temporal, the circumstances, society, when the reality is, look, there is a parallel kingdom that's spiritual. That's God's foremost priority. That's the thing that we want our hearts to come in alignment with. And this broke the heart of the Lord that they were missing the spiritual reality behind the greater plan that he was unfolding. Jesus is literally weeping in this passage because of the condition of people's souls. That's, that's humbling. That's convicting to realize where our Lord's heart is at. Now, before we conclude, let me just share with you one other verse because it's incredible when you look at this passage, and that is this, is Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And you don't have to turn there because that was a prophecy given in Daniel's day 
that is amazing what is going on. Daniel 9.25 says this. Let me read it to you. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that is the time that Messiah the Prince shows up, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Again, centuries before these events were taking place, God predicted a time frame for the revelation of Messiah the Prince. Once the command was given to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem, God said there will be then seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 seven-year periods, which equals 483 years. You take those 483 years, you base it off the ancient calendar they use in that day, 360 days in a calendar year, and that equates to 173,880 days. Now, we know clearly from Nehemiah chapter 2, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes, and it was given on March 14th, 445 B.C., Here's the date. From the date the command goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, you can count, God said, 173,880 days from that date. And if you calculate those days to March 14, 445 B.C., factoring the calendars they used, it comes out to April 6, 32 A.D. Do you know what most historical records say was the day? that Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem, publicly allowing himself to be recognized as the king and the Messiah was? April 6th, 32 AD. Wow. And you wonder why Jesus was so heartbroken. You wonder why he was so saddened. Look, let me just say this morning, if that kind of stuff doesn't make you want to fall down and worship Jesus... Your heart is harder than a stone. That's incredible. But that's the power of our Lord as his plan unfolds. Let's stand together. Let's